Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come again, Lord, to worship your name, worship your holy name. Lord, to thank you one more time for revealing yourself to us through your Son, for saving us through him, giving us your Holy Spirit, that we may know the things of Christ, that we may be raised from the dead as he was raised from the dead, that we may have faith in him, that we may know who we are, that we may understand the mystery that is in Christ Jesus, that in him we were chosen before the foundation of the world to be redeemed by his blood, to be saved by his life, and even now, Lord, uh, to live by the power of his Spirit, the Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord, for this hour that we go into your word again. And Lord, we seek your knowledge, we seek the wisdom of Christ, we seek your teaching. As the scriptures say, they shall all be taught of God, and all those who are taught of God will always come to Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that you teach us this morning, teach your people, even those who shall listen from afar. Lord, we pray and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. John 7, 40 to 53. I determined to be greedy and finish John chapter 7 today. Praise the Lord. John chapter 7. Verses 40 to 53. Therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, Truly this is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Would the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David, and from the town of Bethlehem, where David was. So there was a division among the people because of him. Verse 44. Now, some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, Why have you not brought him? The officers answered, No man ever spoke like this man. Then the Pharisees answered them, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Verse 15. Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, Does our Lord judge a man before it hears him? And knows what he is doing. They answered and said to him. Are you also from Galilee? Search and look. For no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. And everyone went to his own house. The word of the Lord. Our sermon title. It's rather an unusually long title. But it's a necessary title. The crowd that does not know the law is accursed. The crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Or he who does not know the law is accursed. This is our method. This is 
my approach to teaching. We read the text, we explain it, or develop some theological background to it, and then draw theology and the gospel from it. If we don't understand the theology from a text, then we have not understood the text. But to get the understanding of theology, we have to also understand what was happening in the text. And our primary purpose is to preach the gospel. And this is the reason why these things were recorded for us by the Holy Spirit, that we may know, according to John, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's the point of all these things. And as usual, our teaching is long, and it has to be long. If we are teaching seriously the things of Christ, if I just have to come and explain a few things from those verses, I could do that in about 25 minutes and be done, but you will not understand any theology. Some people will say to me, make the teaching short because you have next week. But I don't know that. My approach is make the teaching long because next week has not been promised me. Next week has not been promised me. What I have right here is what God has given me for today. It may be the last one. But we'll go back to our text. And be praying for me even when you're seated there. John 7, 37 to 38. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Therefore many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, Truly this is the prophet. This is the prophet. Which prophet? The prophet that Moses talked about in Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 to 19. Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 19 says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear, according to all you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire any more, lest I die. That's the great fire of the law. Right there is the great fire that the law brings. And the writer of Hebrews actually works on that. Somewhere in the book of Hebrews. Verse 17. And the Lord said to me, What they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words which he speaks in my name, I will require of him. So this is the prophet 
that the Jews are expecting, the messianic expectations at this time are very high. The expectations of one who is like Moses is very high, is fever pitch. And Jesus is doing and saying things that heighten those expectations. And many from the crowd that had come down to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles were hesitantly confessing that Jesus was the prophet that Moses spoke of. They could see some glimpses of Jesus being the prophet that Moses had spoken of. But they were not willing to commit themselves to Jesus. But as always, there were some who held to a different opinion about Jesus. In verse 41, John records for us and said, Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, will the Christ come out of Galilee? So the question about the Christ, this prophet, that is being posed here is, his physical address. Is the Christ going to come out of Galilee? Why? Because according to them, the scriptures nowhere talked about the prophet coming out of Galilee. But you see, Jesus always brings division. Because that is the nature of truth. And he said that was his mission. You see, right here in this conversation, there were already two groups of people that had divided opinion on the origin and person of Jesus. But it is the nature of Jesus to always bring division. Jesus said in 12, sorry, in Luke 12, verses 51, 53, do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. For from now on, five in one house will be divided, three against two and two against three. Father will be divided against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, Mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. So Jesus says, I did not come to settle political scores on earth among enemies. He did not come to be domesticated for men's agendas as has happened in Christendom. Men using the name of Jesus in vain for whatever comes to their mind. Rather, he came to destroy the works of the devil, to divide death and life. That's the division. He came to divide death and life, condemnation and justification. To remove you from condemnation and divide you to salvation. 
So he was crucified between two thieves. One to the left and the other to his right. He was already dividing between life and death on the cross. He was in the middle of the cross as the mediator of life and death. Causing division between life and death and saying to the one thief, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise, not in purgatory. Today in paradise and not in purgatory. Jesus came to divide families because there is individual election in salvation. There is individual election in people's families. The ultimate family is that which is formed by the blood of Christ. The spiritual family that which does the will of God, that which believes in the gospel of grace, that is Jesus' family. From our experience, we have some households, we have some families that are all saved. But even with that, they are saved individually. But if you look at the majority of families, we see that there's separation. We see that there's division. We see that some are saved and others are not. And the difference is Jesus. He's the one who does it. So when Jesus shows up, there's bound to be division. But we have to understand it at a much higher level. Is division in the context of his work of salvation. He is dividing life and death, condemnation and justification, and giving God's people peace. Reconciling God's people to God and to himself. Because Jesus Christ is God. You need to be reconciled to God the Father as much as you need to be reconciled to Jesus. Because Jesus is holy and he is God and he is righteous. And so he would say in John 14, 27. John 14, 27. With regards to the peace that he brought. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. Jesus brings division. And yet he in the division brings peace. Jesus brings peace. In the division. The peace that Jesus gives is not like what the world gives. The word says peace, peace, when there's no peace. But the peace of Jesus is an everlasting peace with God. And because of that, that is the basis of his statement to say, do not let your heart be troubled, 
by those things that are around you, you are safe. If you have peace with God, what can men do to you? If God be for you, who can be against you? So that is the context of the division. Christ is coming or has come to divide condemnation and justification. To take you from your condemned state and to justify you and to give you a peace with God that cannot be taken away from you. So he's already doing the separation of his people by the statement that he's making. He is drawing his people even as you have this commotion in Jerusalem. But in the crowd were those who wanted to show that they knew something about the origins of the Messiah and yet did not know what they were talking about. Listen to verse 41. But some said, Will the Christ come out of Galilee? They doubt that Jesus is the Christ. They doubt that Jesus is the Christ because he is from Galilee. And according to them, there should not be a prophet to come from Galilee. But of course they were lying and were ignorant of their own history as a nation. Jonah, the prophet, was from Galilee. Second Kings 14.25 He restored from the territory of Israel from the entrance of Hamath to the Sea of the Arabah according to the word of the Lord God of Israel which he had spoken through his servant Jonah the son of Amittai the prophet who was from Gath Hefer. And if you go and look at the map Gath Hefer was in Galilee. Also, the minor prophet Nehum was also from this region. And so these guys do not know what they're talking about because in their mind, there's never been a prophet to come out of Galilee. And so they say, in verse 42, John 7, 42, Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? Yes, the Christ comes from the seed of David. He is David's greater son. Even the blind beggar called on Jesus and called him as the son of David. The Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem, the seed of David, but grew up in Galilee. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And this was all by God's sovereign and wise arrangement so that they would only know Jesus not by his physical address but by God's revelation. For no one can come to Jesus unless the Father draws them. And none can know who Jesus is unless the Father reveals Jesus to them. And so there was confusion And John tells us and says in verse 43, so there was a division among the people because of him. 
the division among the people was not because of their different political positions, but it came because of Jesus. Division among the people is always the natural outcome of preaching the true Jesus and the true gospel. People do not want a gospel that exalts the sovereign will of God. They don't want the gospel that exalts the glory of Christ alone in salvation. They want a gospel that makes them shareholders and equal investment partners with Jesus. And that is called the free will gospel. The I invited and chose Jesus gospel. But John says in verse 44. Now some of them wanted to take him. But no one laid hands on him. So some were not very amused by Jesus claims. And so instead of ignoring him, they wanted to take him, to arrest him as a Sabbath breaker, as a false prophet, as a deceiver, who was also a Galilean claiming to be the Messiah, when there should not be any prophet from there, and one who claimed to be God. So you see, Jesus has a lot of issues, according to them. If you speak the truth of God, it always sounds as deception to the natural man who are opposed to the truth. The truth is not natural to man. Man cannot handle truth. Lies are what are natural to man. One who is not born again has no capacity or ability to hear truth. One who is not born again has no ability or capacity to hear truth. They can only hear falsehood. For to hear and accept truth is only by the work of God. Truth is foreign to the world. Truth is foreign to the sinful world. It's foreign to the sinful man. It does not smell of life. It does not smell of money. It is foolishness and it sounds deceitful. How can God save me freely without me kicking my 10%? It's impossible. How can God save me without me doing something for my salvation? So the Jews wanted, they had the expressed desire to take Jesus, to manhandle Jesus. But none laid hands on him because his hour had not yet come. You see, There are just so many things that have to go right for you to get up and make it here on Sunday. Just so many things that have to go right. You have to be able to get out of bed. You have to be able to shower. 
You have to be able to find the keys. The car has to start. You have to have gas. You have to have, the tires have to have pressure. And the highway has to be open. Just all those little details have to be there to make it here. And every little detail had to be there for the hour of Jesus to be accomplished. And God was doing it. And these men were trying to arrest Jesus, but Jesus had their evil desire on pause. They could not do it. (laughs) From the crowd, there were people who were so enraged by Jesus that they wanted to do a citizen's arrest on him. And in verse 32 of John 7, the religious leaders had separately sent the temple guards to go arrest Jesus. But the temple guards suffered the same fate as the rest. Jesus' hour has not come and they cannot do anything without Jesus permitting it. They needed Jesus to arrest Jesus. For without him, they could do nothing. And so they came back and gave a report, a very embarrassing report to the chief priests and Pharisees who were so eager to get rid of Jesus. The chief priests and the rulers desperately wanted Jesus arrested. But without attracting much attention from the public. But God does not give Jesus into their hands in this time. Because it's God who is in charge. And so John says in verse 45. Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees. Who say to them. Why have you not brought him? In dismay, they ask the temple police and say, Why have you not brought him? And this is a rebuke. But the officers answered in verse 46, No man ever spoke like this man. The temple officers had been deeply impressed by Jesus. And literally had been disarmed by his understanding. Jesus did not point any guns at them or any sword against them. His understanding, his clarity, his conviction, his power, his knowledge, his fearlessness was enough to disarm them. The temple police knew That coming back to the Sanhedrin, to the rulers, without Jesus was trouble for them. And they had to gather courage to go back without Jesus and say, No man ever spoke like this man. Why? Because Jesus was God in their midst. And as God, he does not speak like any other man. There's none like the Lord. That's the point. He said of himself in Isaiah 46, 5, To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we should be alike? 
<laughs> what were the temple officers saying? No man ever spoke like this man. They were saying they had never seen or heard anyone who is not more than a man speak like Jesus. One has to be more than a man to speak the way that Jesus spoke. That's what they're saying. They were saying Jesus spoke not just as a mere man, but as someone who was more than man. Jesus spoke as God in the flesh. That is what was being said by the Holy Spirit through the man. And that alone was the reason they could not arrest Jesus. No one stopped them. Like I said, no one stopped the man from reaching to Jesus. No one did. And no one tried to defend Jesus from getting arrested as Peter would let her do. They heard him speak. And they made the conclusion. No man ever spoke like this man. Let's retreat quietly and go back and give a report to the Sanhedrin. And on arrival, verse 47, the Pharisees answered them, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? The Pharisees were irritated by the response of the officers. The officers are not helping the situation. They are heightening the mystique of Jesus. So the rulers surmised that the officers had been hoodwinked by Jesus. They think Jesus has pulled the wool over them. Like the rest who in their judgment had been deceived. Hence the question, are you also deceived? Are you also deceived, brother Robert? The working assumption is that anyone who believes in Jesus is deceived. And so, we are in very good company of the deceived. Because we believe in Jesus. Now, they want to investigate. The rulers want to do an investigation to determine the spread of this deception even among their own ranks. So they ask the question in verse 48, have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? Has this deception by Jesus infiltrated our ranks also? And if so, we are so in trouble and we need to deal with these among our ranks who are getting deceived by this man who did not go to school as they did. Remember, at the beginning of the chapter, the question was, how does this man speak the way that he speaks, not having learned? So if this man who didn't go to school is deceiving men from their own ranks, we are in serious trouble. We need to put a stop to it.
according to the rulers, it should be unthinkable for any among the rulers of the chief priests, the Sadducees and Pharisees, to fall for this kind of deception. It should be unthinkable. These are the spiritually astute and the well-educated class of people from among the Jews. They know the law and they should have enough discernment to see that Jesus is an imposter. Jesus is a deceiver. But in contrast to the well-educated rulers, in contrast to the well-educated rulers, there is this mass of people, the crowd, the common people, the lowly people who do not know the law. And when the rulers use the language of this crowd, this mob, they are using it in a condescending way. It is setting them against those who are educated. The elites of the Jewish society. And this is the way the learned rabbis looked at common people. And this thinking and attitude was also applied to the Samaritans, the unclean and inferior people. So according to the rulers, these people in the crowd who have believed in Jesus are ignorant. Only ignorant people, according to them, are easy to deceive. And only ignorant people follow Jesus. That's the point. Only ignorant people follow Jesus. And that is the reasoning behind their statements. This crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Because if they were not ignorant, they would not have followed Jesus. Sister cell, if you were well educated, you would not follow Jesus. Because Jesus is only for those who are ignorant. <laughs> and because they are ignorant of the law, the rulers say, because they are ignorant of the law and the scriptures. Because here, I think, when they say the law is inclusive of the scriptures. Because in part of their questioning of Jesus is they are asking about where he is going to be born. The origin of the Messiah. Is he going to be born in Bethlehem or in Galilee? So this is the larger context of the law beyond just the first five books of the Bible. And so they say, because this crowd is ignorant of the law and the scriptures, they are cursed of God. And the surest sign that they've been cursed of God is that they believe on this deceiver, Jesus. <laughs> but as soon as they pronounce the cursed condition of those who are ignorant of the law, God sovereignly rises to accuse them of their own law-breaking, of their own ignorance of the law. Just as they have been taught earlier by Jesus that they were breaking the law on the Sabbath 
by circumcising on the Sabbath and that none of them obeyed the law and that means automatically they too were accursed. <laughs> but God provides a second witness to their law breaking. Jesus in this chapter has witnessed to their law breaking. And now he gives a second witness to their law breaking in the person from their own ranks, Nicodemus, a teacher of Israel, a Pharisee. Nicodemus raises a procedural question which is according to the law as far as how they were supposed to handle Jesus. And he says what he says because he sees that they are not following their own law. And it's God who does it through Nicodemus. Here Deuteronomy 1, 16 to 18. Then I commanded your judges at that time, saying, Hear the cases between your brethren, and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the stranger who is with him. You shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small as well as the great. You shall not be afraid in any man's presence, for the judgment is God's. The case that is too hard for you, bring to me and I'll hear it. And I commanded you all that time, all the things which you should do. And Nicodemus brings this understanding to his own colleagues. Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, Does our Lord judge a man before it hears him? And knows what he is doing. So Nicodemus comes and he shows spiritual discernment of the person of Jesus. Nicodemus has the same discernment as was demonstrated by Gamaliel. That, that's always a difficult one for me. There are too many L's there. We need to move maybe to Acts 5, 33-39. When they had this, they were furious and plotted to kill them. To kill them. Then one in the council stood up. What council? It's the Sanhedrin again. Stood up. A Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in respect by all the people and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Judas rose up claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee, rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, Keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, 
lest you even be found to fight against God. So Gamaliel has the same discernment as Nicodemus. Nicodemus, who is among their ranks, seems to have been infected by the Jesus bug. Nicodemus is feeling some things about Jesus. Nicodemus has been born again. Nicodemus has heard about the new birth in John chapter 3. Nicodemus has heard about the raising of Jesus on the cross as Moses raised the bronze serpent. Yes, Nicodemus has been deceived by Jesus. Nicodemus tried to appeal to reason. But these religious authorities were not taken kindly to it. They were very worked up beyond reason. Spiritually dead people cannot reason their way to understand Jesus. And so they answered and said to him in verse 52, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. The colleagues of Nicodemus are not impressed, not just with Jesus, but with Nicodemus. And they have no time to listen to what Nicodemus has to say and weigh his arguments. They think Nicodemus has been led astray and is being strange in his defense of Jesus. They think Nicodemus has been deceived. They say, Nicodemus, the only way you can defend Jesus is if you are a Galilean yourself. What is that saying? The religious authorities are using being a Galilean negatively as the Jews use the term Samaritan. So Nicodemus, you have reason to defend your fellow countryman who is from an inferior people in Galilee. Nicodemus, you are an inferior person as Jesus. And so Nicodemus, your fate has been tied with that of Jesus. Got to follow the gospel there. There's a gospel there. Nicodemus is in union with Jesus. Because Nicodemus is born again. Nicodemus belongs to Jesus. And so the challenge Nicodemus is to search and look in the scriptures if there is anywhere that talked about Galilee having any prophets. But as I said earlier, Jonah and Nahum were both from Galilee and the religious authorities in their ignorance do not know that. So they miss the origin of Jesus. Even more, they miss the true origin of Jesus. Jesus is not from Galilee and Jesus is not from Bethlehem. Jesus descended from heaven. In Galilee, they are debunking the wrong tree. Jesus is not the son of Galilee. 
He is the son of God. And that is what John is working hard to teach us about Jesus. That he is the Christ, the son of the living God. And no one has descended from heaven, but he who is from heaven. Now that's our text. Now the gospel. We still have the gospel. The crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Why would God the Holy Spirit inspire those statements to be made and to be recorded by John in the context of the discussion that we have had between Jesus and the Jews? All the way from John 5, all the way to John 7 and to John 8. The underlying debate until the cross is about salvation. It's about the function of Judaism, that is the law. It's about the gospel and the person of Jesus in all these things. Jesus has come claiming to be the son of God who is the Christ, who is the prophet. And he has come saying he is the fulfillment of Judaism. And not only that, and that he is superior to Judaism. He is superior to the law. He has come preaching the gospel of salvation by grace and not by the works of Judaism, not by the works of the flesh. He has come telling people that there is no hope in the law for the law testified of him. And so God uses irony through John to teach the function of the law. And we need to understand because it's one of John's techniques of writing. It's just so all over the teaching of John. Irony. And this is what I went and got from Wikipedia, even though my girls think that you should not go and get anything from Wikipedia. But I went anyway. According to Wikipedia, irony in its broadest sense is a rhetorical device or a literal technique or event in which what appears on the surface to be the case differs radically from what is actually the case. We're going to be working that. Apostle John, by the Holy Spirit, used verbal irony. He used verbal irony. And verbal irony is defined again as a statement in which the meaning that a speaker employs is sharply different from the meaning that is expressed. The ironic statement usually involves the explicit expression of one attitude or evaluation, but with indications in the overall speech situation that the speaker intends a different and often opposite attitude or evaluation. So the speaker is communicating the opposite of what they mean. 
the religious leaders who call themselves educated and teachers of the law said the crowd that was ignorant of the law was cursed by the law. Why? Because according to them, their ignorance of the law brought them to Jesus. It's beautiful. You, you should not miss this. According to the rulers, the ignorance of these common people was demonstrated in that their ignorance brought them to Jesus. The assumption is that anyone who knows the law should not come to Jesus. They who thought knew the law and the proper function of the law refused to come to Jesus. Do you see the irony? The irony is that it is they who were actually accused by the law, not the crowd that believed in Jesus. The crowd, though not much educated in the law, understood the function of the law in that it led them to Jesus. To come to Jesus is to understand the true function of the law, even though you are not educated. Apparently, their ignorance led them to Jesus. <laughs> and, and so that was ironic because in their ignorance, they did what the Lord demanded of them to do, to run to Christ. And even if they were accused, listen to this, and even if they were accused by going to Jesus, they were having their curse removed. Yes, they were accused, but in Jesus, they found a curse bearer. Unlike the Pharisees who thought knew the law and could do the law. There are many well-educated teachers of the law, even in our day, who tell us that we are still under the law of Moses. But I pray God will cause you to be called ignorant of the law and be deceived and run to Jesus. The crowd, the common people, these lowly people, these who were accused, these who had no merit before the law had been taught of God. They had been taught by God the proper use of the law. And the proper use of the law was for them to come to Jesus. The proper way of the law, proper function of the law was to bring them to Jesus. The law's function was not to serve anyone but to direct the accused to the one who serves, one who could honor the law and one who could bear the curse of the law. In John 5, 39-47, Jesus said to the Jews, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. 
I do not receive honor from man, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? Do not think that I shall accuse you to the father. There's one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you'd believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? What is Jesus saying? He's saying, the law testifies of Christ. It testifies of him as the Messiah, as the Son of God, as God's righteousness. And that was his purpose, as a servant of God, to give testimony to the glory of the Son of God. And the Lord Jesus Christ, speaking to the blindness or ignorance of the Jews, said this in John 9, 39 to 41. And Jesus said, John 9, 39 to 41. And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. Verse 40. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say we see, therefore your sin remains. Those who thought they knew the law and were obeying the law are these that Jesus said claimed to see. Anyone who claims to do the law according to Jesus, they are claiming to see. And that is irony again, because they actually did not see. If one does not see Jesus, they are blind. If they had been blind or ignorant as the accursed crowd, then God would have lifted their blindness and caused them to see Jesus. For the one who is blind because of Christ has no sin. Those are theologically important statements. What is that saying? One who is blind has no sin. That's what Jesus said. If you are blind, according to Jesus' definition of being blind, you have no sin. Your sin does not remain on you. That's the words of the Son of God. If you are blind. So we need to understand what it means for one to be blind according to Jesus' definition. Jesus Christ should make you blind to your own righteousness for you to be blind. Acts 9, verse 8 to 9. Can I read that? Acts 9, verse 8 to 9. This is Saul on the road to Damascus. 
exercising his free will. Saul got up from the ground. And though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. When Saul was flashed by the glory of Christ on the road to Damascus, his eyes were opened, but he saw nothing. You gotta hear that again. When Apostle Paul was blinded by the glory of Christ, his eyes were opened, but he was blind. If God causes you to see the glory of Christ, he will open your eyes. But when your eyes have been opened by God, you see nothing for three days. Let's work the theology. What is that saying? Why blind for three days and not two days? Why not five days? Three is for completion. The Trinity. Paul is completely made blind. When Jesus shows up for you, you should see only the glory of Christ and nobody else. Not of Moses. Not of the law. And not of the prophets. And not of yourself. Saul could not even see himself. And could not see even the company of his friends. Who also had the voice but saw no one. They saw no one. His friends had to take and lead him by his hand. Saul saw Jesus and nothing else. His friends had the voice and had nothing. Apostle Paul saw Jesus and nothing else. The light that struck Saul was only particular for Saul. His friends knew nothing of it. That's sovereignty. That is election. In preaching and teaching the gospel, my function, my purpose, my mission, my only mission is for you to get your eyes opened so that you may see nothing else but Christ. In Jesus' theology, you see when you are blind. And are blind when you think you see. May the Lord blind you that you may see Christ only. On the Mount of Transfiguration, as we have taught, when Peter, James, and John lifted up their eyes after God has spoken, it is said, when they had lifted up their eyes, <laughs> they saw no one but Jesus only. <laughs> they did not see the law as represented 
by Moses. And they did not see the prophets as represented by Elijah. What are we saying? We are saying the law had a function to cause us not to just hear about Christ, but to see him and nothing else. To see him alone in our salvation, not in the company of others. Saul saw the light from the Lord, but saw nothing else. He couldn't see anything else, but he could see Jesus. <laughs> if you are really seeing Jesus for who he truly is, you should see nothing else. If you are still seeing something when his light has been shone in your heart, then you are not hearing from the true Jesus and are not hearing the gospel which is by faith alone. You are hearing the gospel as a gospel of works. If you hear the gospel as the gospel of grace alone in Christ alone, you see nothing else but Jesus alone. And because Apostle Paul saw Jesus alone, he would say in Philippians 3, 8 to 11, you're going to hear this until I die. Yet indeed, verse 8 to 11, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, including my sight. <laughs> including my sight. And count them as rubbish. Actually, I just had a thought. That Apostle Paul's eyes were failing. I'm thinking that may have come from experiencing the glory of Christ. I never had anybody say that, but just something that came to my mind. But he says, For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So what is Apostle Paul saying? He is saying, if you see Jesus, if you see the true Jesus, you can only count everything about you as rubbish. And that is what it means to see Jesus. And that is what it means to be blind. The law says, Galatians 3.10, For as many as are the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. And that is a direct quotation from Deuteronomy 27, verse 26. For as many are those who seek to be justified before God by their obedience to the law, and that is by their own works of righteousness outside the righteousness of Christ, these are under a curse. 
One does not have to know all the commandments of the law to be under the law and to be under the full curse of the law. If you know one part of the law and you miss it, the scriptures say you are guilty of the whole law. So anyone who is not under Christ is by default under the law. If you are not under Christ, you are not covered by the righteousness of Christ, you are by default under the whole law and everything that the law demands. And their works are judged by the law. And the law says, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. So one cannot divide the law into things that we can do. We can't define our obedience to God only in certain areas of our lives that we want and that we think we can do and that we have determined by our own judgment to be pleasing to God. For to do that is to make ourselves God. And this is what God requires of you. God requires that if you determine to please him in any way by what you do yourself, then you have to approach him and be judged by the standard of the law. And God requires that you continue to do all things. That's the part that a lot of people miss. All things to his level of performance and righteousness. From not when you heard about the law, but from when you were born. Until the day that you die. And guess what? If you could do the law until the day that you die and you die, then it means you never obey the law. Because the law promises life to those who obey it. So if you die trying to obey the law, it means you fail to obey the law. <laughs> the wages of sin is death. <laughs> so hear me someone. The Lord was cursed on the tree. That is on the cross. Why? Because the sins of his people had been put on him. The sins of his people had been put on him according to Isaiah 53, 4 and 5. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. He bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. God put our sins on Christ and Christ bore them as his sins and suffered the punishment that was due our sins. He was cursed on the tree because according to God's law, he had assumed the sin debt of those who had broken the law. Christ was made liable for your own disobedience. But there are those who continue to tell us that we are under the law and the gospel. These do not know the law. <laughs> and I mean it seriously. The law accuses them. 
Jesus Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. Now the question is, do you believe? If you believe in Christ, then that is the end of the law for righteousness. If one believes, the law ends its jurisdiction when it gets to the city of refuge. But those who have one leg out and another leg in the city of refuge are bound to be cursed by the law by the avenger of blood. (laughs) What am I saying? Lest many think this is just about some old and outdated arrangement of the Old Testament. This is teaching that you have to stay within the boundaries of God's salvation. The boundaries that God has set for us. And the gospel of grace establishes the safe boundaries for those who have run to the seat of refuge. No more attempts to pay your own ransom price. No more attempts to play with the avenger of blood. No more attempts to stand on your own righteousness, but only on the death of the high priest. The death of the high priest is the only good news for those, for the one who is in the city of refuge, for the one who needs salvation, the one who knows that the law condemns them, the one who knows that if they ever meet with the law, it will demand death from them. So this is where we are. The function of the law was to drive you to Christ. Because you were accursed. And if you have come to Christ, according to Jesus, you have understood the proper function of the law. Is that understandable? Abriana, did you understand that? Praise the Lord. So I'm done today. Let's pray. (laughs) Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before the throne again. Lord, we thank you for your gospel of grace and thanking your son Jesus Christ for teaching us these things that we may know what the function of the law was that it was to lead us to Christ it was a servant of Christ that he would prepare us to receive him and now that faith has come we are no more under the law and Lord we thank you for doing that which we could not do for ourselves. We thank you, Lord, for suffering the shame of death on the cross for our sake. And Lord, we thank you that we have not been consumed because of our sin. For the wages of sin is death. And yet we are here walking every day, not dead, only by your grace. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray and thank you for all those who shall hear. And Lord, may you Multiply understanding to us and those who are far off. We pray and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.